Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about bringing games back to life. We're talking about taking the game back off the shelf, putting it back on the table, breathing new life into it. And we're talking to an expert, talking to the guy over at Restoration Games, Justin Jacobson. Justin, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited to talk to you today about bringing a game back to life. I mean, just kind of taking the thing and maybe retheming it, maybe changing the me- mechanisms around, but bringing a game from, you know, it's not quite good, it's not where we want it, but we can breathe new life into it later. Because that's, that's what you guys do over at Restoration Games. And so, uh, actually, maybe people have never heard of you, so give me your bio. Who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that good stuff. Sure. Uh, my name is Justin Jacobson. I am the president of Restoration Games. Uh, my ostensible partner is Rob Davio, who most of you have probably heard of. I know he's been on the podcast before. Yeah. Um, and ironically, so I, I've always been into games uh, for a long, long time. I played hobby games way, way back. Uh, you know, uh, Dance Civ and Rail Baron and Cosmic Encounter and all that stuff I played when I was a kid. And so I've always been into games. Uh, I dabbled a little bit in game publishing on the RPG side during the D20 license era. Um, some you know, source books and stuff for Dungeons & Dragons. Um, so I just sort of dipped my toe in there a little bit, mostly just for fun. Uh, meanwhile, I had a full-time legal practice. And uh, in that capacity, I did a lot of contract work, uh, civil litigation, stuff like that. But uh, debt collection, a little boring, a little soul-sucking. <laughs> so one of the things I always did is... Uh, I tried to sort of do some legal game work to just, you know, keep my head straight or even then for pro bono, for some of my pro bono work, I would help out freelancers with, you know, making contracts and things for themselves. And one of the things I always did, uh, I would go to Gen Con every year and I would put on a legal Q&A seminar mostly so I could write off the trip. <laughs> Uh, and as it turns out, after one of those uh, little uh, Q&A seminars, uh, a nice young woman came up to me and said, oh, my husband, uh, he works uh, at Hasbro and he's getting ready to leave and he's got some questions about what he can't, can't do and you know how to, how to get started on that. And that was uh, Rob Davio's uh, wife, Lindsay Davio, who uh, also worked at Hasbro for a period of time. She's uh, currently Restoration Games' is. Uh, well, we call her our production superhero. She's the one who gets all the production files ready. She does some graphic design and layout and things like that and basically makes the games look really good for the publisher. And literally, our, our manufacturer um, says, oh, my gosh, she's so good. She's the best we've ever worked with. So they never Usually, they'll have to go around a couple rounds with some of the other publishers, and invariably with it's us, it's like, you know, change this one little thing, and they're good to go. So it's really great. Um, and that's sort of how I met Rob. And then over the years, I helped him with some contract work. And I sort of always wanted to get back into it. But I knew the idea of starting a, a game publishing company was a, a bit of a folly, particularly how busy and crowded that area is. And one day, sort of out of the blue, I just had this wild idea. And I said, it'd be cool if 
we took like an old game and I had a specific game in mind was Star Wars Queen's Gambit. Like I was seeing how everybody, oh, I wish it was still in print and that game's so good, but you know, the nobody likes episode one, you know, <laughs> um, and they'll never make it again, blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, you could make it again if you just change the theme. And so I had this idea of doing a Kickstarter to bring back Star Wars Queen's Gambit with a different theme hmm. or basically without the Star Wars IP in, in it. And I did some thinking about how you would do that in terms of working with the mechanics and, you know, whatever. And as it turns out, Rob was a co-designer on Queen's Gambit, um, which I hadn't known at the time I first started thinking about it. But obviously I figured it out and I actually approached Rob about it. And uh, first thing he told me is, well, you definitely can't do that. <laughs> and we talked about it some more and uh, various reasons why that would be. And I said, well, what if we took a game? We started talking about all the old games that we love as kids. And it's funny, once, so we were talking about this, and there's an old game called Pathfinder, which has nothing to do with the uh, RPG of today. It's an old, it's from like the 70s. It's a maze-building game where each side, it's a two-player game, each side builds their maze. You have this sort of battleship-configured setup, and then on your side, instead of putting your ships down and where you're firing stuff, you're putting walls for a maze. And then the other side is doing the same thing. And then you're each trying to go through each other's maze and find the briefcase, I think it was, and get uh, out before the other person does. Uh, so it was really cool. And he said he always just, like tweaked it and was doing, so I think I forget what he was doing, like some sort of resource management thing he added. He had sort of tweaked it in his own head a little bit. And uh, he was sort of excited by that idea of taking some of these old games that we love and sort of modernizing. And then once that, once that all clicked, we just started talking about different games. And, you know, then I just decided to take the plunge, so to speak. Um, and I divested myself from my practice and sort of jumped in with both feet and uh, with Rob and we started the company up. And uh, that's where we are today. So now we take old games, out of print games from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, modernize them and uh, bring them back for today's gamer. Yeah, and what I love about what you guys do is you don't do reprints. Like, you're not just going back and, right. and, and reprinting an old game. You restore them. Like, you bring them up to modern day, modernize them, like you just said. And that's what really is the, the difference because it's not like the crappy old roll and move me mechanisms of yesteryear. It's bringing up to, you know, 2018 standards. And you've done what, some of the games that you've done Stop Thief, Downforce. What are some of the other ones? Indulgence. Um, and then obviously Fireball Island, we're working on. And uh, we recently announced Dinosaur Tea Party, uh, which is a remake of a 1976 game called Who's It, which uh, we can talk about some more. It's an interesting one. Um, but it's basically like a multiplayer, slightly meatier version of Guess Who. Yeah. Uh, so just a deduction game. Right. And what has the response been for these games that, that people maybe remember playing 20, 30 years ago? What have, what have they been saying? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I really think this was sort of my lightning-in-a-bottle idea, once-in-a-lifetime kind of great, crazy idea. I don't know. I mean, it just came to me, like I said, but the response has been so overwhelming and so re reaffirming uh, that it, it just clicks. I, it's the, another funny story. When I was getting ready to, to start the company, I'm uh, friends with Tom Vassell, who's down where I live, um, and I you know, see him at game days and stuff all the time, and He's always telling people, like, people always say they want to start a game company. He's like, don't do it. <laughs> He's always telling people not to start a game company, especially don't start a game company just because you can't get your game published. That's not a reason to self-publish. Right. And I, so I went to him and I said, when we were thinking about it, and I said, Tom, 
I think I'm thinking about starting a game company. I said, wait a minute, hear me out. <laughs> and I explained that Rob Davio was on board, which was a nice, you know, feather in the cap, obviously, but also the concept behind what we were doing that we weren't just going to make. Everyone always says, well, what, what are you going to do if you're going to become a publisher? Oh, we'll make great games. Well, that's what everyone does. And so we sort of knew we needed this hook to stand out uh, among all the publishers. And it just works. The, we, we get so many people. It's so, I mean, again, from where I came from as a lawyer to what I do now, I get people coming up thanking me, you know, for making the game, games and for just the concept of it and the idea that we're looking at these old games and, and trying to bring them back. Um, so it's very reaffirming. Yeah, for sure. Now tell me about your process. Like, how do you guys determine which games that you want to try to bring back? And, and, and then we'll get into like the more game design process in a second, but like, tell me about like your first line of decision-making. Right. So first thing we need to do is we have, we have, first things first, we have like a huge list of games that, uh, are the, we put in the hopper, so to speak. They're just a big pile of a list of games that sort of meet our criteria that comes principally from the fans and uh, the biggest print and principally that comes from our website. If you go to our website, restorationgames.com, uh, at the very top of the website, it's been there since we launched the company, is a field, a very simple field that says, what game would you like us to bring back and why? And you click the button and that's it. And so I get emails every day from that form saying, oh, I want this game because I played it with my, you know, my cousins and we had such fun. Or, oh, I played this one because I always wanted it for Christmas and I never got it or whatever. That kind of, and now it's, now you can't find it anywhere, whatever it is. Uh, or I always like this mechanic. Or this game would be so good if you just changed this one problem, that sort of thing. Uh, sometimes they're funny. Um, so we get a lot of, not a lot, but we get more than one uh, people requesting that we restore Monopoly, for example. <laughs> right. Or uh, some of these other games that are still very much in print. Um, which I guess they're sort of just hoping we'll quote-unquote fix them, but right. obviously that's not what we do. Um, so we have this huge list of games. It's like this spreadsheet with like 300 titles on it and then certain votes uh, for how many times they've been suggested, and we have notes about either things we're, what we're thinking about them or things that people have mentioned about them. So every once in a while I sort of just go through the list and start looking at titles and thinking about how you might we might approach it. So we first things first is we have this sort of big list of games. And then there's really two parts to it, right? So the first part is we have to make sure that we can do the game legally, ethically, all that stuff, that it's something we can approach one, you know, feasibly to actually bring it out as a product. And then the other thing we have we look at is is it something that we can work on gameplay-wise and game design-wise to that we can actually do something with a restoration that it it's not going to just be a reprint. And by the same token, we can bring something to it that will really make it a great modern game without changing the whole spirit of it. And it's no longer even looks like what it originally was because at that point it's not really a restoration. It's just a new game. Um, so there's, those are the two main parts uh, to it. And uh, then obviously we can't print a million games, so we sort of have to figure out what's going to work for us as a company in term, and as a product in terms of price point and cost and you know what we think the market demand might be and that sort of stuff. But that's usually like the last, like, well, 
smell test, sort of, if you will. Yeah, and your your company is in such an interesting place because you have customers telling you exactly what they want. <laughs> like this is so different than most game publishers who hope, you know, they kind of hope for the best. They have an idea, they think the game's good, and they release it to market, and then kind of cross their fingers. Whereas you guys have tons of people saying, "I want this game. Here is the reason," and you can kind of give them hopefully what they're wanting. Now, you know, customers are fickle, so right. it doesn't always work that way. But it's just a, a really cool thing. Yeah, no, you're right. It's actually really, it's really very different. Uh, So, for example, we were just at the Gamma Trade Show, and uh, I know people were meeting, lots of designers are meeting with publishers and things like that. I don't ever do that. I don't take meetings with designers. (laughs) I always say, and I'll throw this out there, especially for your listening audience, it'd be very apropos. We're always willing to listen to guest durations, we call them, um, where if somebody wants to come in and, uh, they've got a game either. I mean, obviously, Downforce we did was Wolfgang Kramer's one of his old designs. I mean, if you have an old game, if you've been around them a while and got a few games under your belt, maybe you've got an old game. It was one of your earlier designs, and you think it could stand for a, a restoration. Uh, by all means, we would do that. Or if you've got a game that you were just passionate about as a kid, um, you know, uh, like Rob's, uh, you know, interest in Pathfinder. Uh, by all means, approach us. But it's not like we can't just look at any old, oh, I just got this new game design for a deck builder. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, you should probably talk to somebody else, you know. So that is, it is interesting in that standpoint that uh, we sort of have, and where we're not doing, you know, obviously fully original designs. We're working from something towards uh, a new product. So it's, we don't have to come up with that, like, first idea or that hook um, that can be challenging for a new game designer. Uh, or new game design. So that's interesting. And then on the other hand, though, we obviously, it's not something everyone can do, not the least of which just figuring out the legal rights and getting all that squared away. I mean, that's it's funny. That's where my background as a lawyer, I still do a lot of legal work. It's just a lot more interesting, a lot more fun because uh, it's in the board game uh, arena. Uh, but it's we a little, have to... little better than debt collection, like you were saying before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gotcha. So what you're saying is if I have an idea for a game, I don't know, I'll call it King's Gamble based on a certain other game. I should come to you and be like, hey, I got this idea. Sure, sure. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, we're always willing to listen for sure. Um, And and I will say this also, uh, you know, the game designer, I mean, obviously, if they can come to us and say this is my design from 20 years ago and I think it could, you know, work with a restoration, that's great. That makes it super easy. But even if it's a game you're just interested in or you've always liked you know, you don't necessarily need to worry about the rights part of it. You can approach us. And if we think it is something that looks like we might be able to do it or might be interested in it, then I can start working on it myself. Mm -hmm. So the designers don't need to have that all in the bag. Obviously if they do or they can, that makes it a lot easier, but it's not necessary, you know, to approach us that way. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, let's start talking about the process of, of you actually taking these games, these older games and breathing that new life into them. So kind of walk me through beginning middle end of you know you say okay we want to we want to remake fireball island well what does that look like because you you know it's got old school mechanisms old school stuff going on so where do you start in bringing that up to the 2018 level of gamer right so the one of the cool things about doing this is we we've gotten to take a look back and look at some of these old games and the design approaches that people took you know in the 70s and 80s and stuff it was obviously very different uh, for a lot of these games, not everything, but it's really interesting because there are there are things in those old games that were so new and novel, and even some that haven't been done since really, 
Um, so if we take a step back, like Stop Thief, for example, uh, for those who don't know, it's a, a game of hidden movement and audio deduction. And it's similar in a lot of ways to like letters from White Trap, Whitechapel or uh, Spectre Ops, uh, Nuns on the Run, that sort of thing, where there's a hidden move, person moving on the board. The difference is that uh, the game comes with this big electronic, the 1979 version, big electronic dedicated mini computer, as it were, uh, which we've since replaced with an app, and we can talk about that. But the the key mechanic of this hidden movement that's controlled by the game has not been done since then. Um, I actually heard, I think there was at least a period of time they were talking about doing an app for Spectre Ops that would uh, let the one person sort of at least keep track of their stuff on the app. I don't know if it would do the AI for the actually having the computer move. But other than that, I mean, you don't see that anywhere else. So it's kind of amazing. I mean, that game is almost 40 years old. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we look for is like, what is the unique hook? I mean, what is it that people found so compelling about that original game? And that's, we call, we, what we do in-house, what I've said this before, is we say we try and find the soul of the game. That little spark that just makes it stand out from other games. Um, and it's never the roll and move, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and in fact, Stop Thief, the original game, is roll and move. You roll the dice and you move your investigator that number of spaces. Um, no one like, oh, I love Stop Thief. It had this great roll and move <laughs> where you would roll the dice and move that number. No one says that. Yeah. It's that, that unique thing. So what we do is we, once we find that soul of the game, that spark, we sort of strip everything else out and then see what can we do, what mechanisms can we add or what components or thing or theme or whatever can we do to support that and magnify that and augment that because that's what's special about the game. And so if we're looking, you know, I would guess if, you know, if we can apply this to even just modern uh, designers on working on modern games, I think it's such a useful thing. And it sort of helped me as I think about designs for other games too. I mean, I'm sort of a amateur game designer, if you will, in addition to what I do uh, in the restoration stuff. I mean, not I mean, compared to Rob, let's say, <laughs> but one of the things I've learned to do is sort of think about things in that way. And you can do that with a modern game design too, right? Think about the thing in your game that is what everyone will be talking about and remembering or the the thing that's going to make the elevator pitch. And then everything else is subject to change, right? Yeah. And everything else should be built in to serve that and to make that work and to make that sing and shine. And I think that's a really important approach. For us, it's the the most important thing. And it's the first thing we talk about. Like, what is in this original game that we want to put the spotlight on? So for Fireable Island, it's fairly obvious. <laughs> Same thing again. Uh, no, It's not the roll and move. <laughs> uh, we get that a lot, obviously, with some, a lot of the games that we're looking at. It's that huge 3D island yep. with the marbles that come down and, you know, blow the player pawns all over the place. And that's the hook. And so when we were working on Fireball Island, we said, well, okay, we want to make that more, like turn that up to 11, you know. And so can we make the island bigger? Can we make the marbles do different things? Can we change the paths of the marbles? And in fact, so one of the first things Rob did when he got his hands on Fireball Island, and got a chance to play it. So in the original game, you would roll the die and move your 
pond and if you just move it was a, a simple race game you're trying to get the gem and get back to the dock and the first person to do that wins and so the path is very linear there's not a lot of choices about where to go a few and then there's the cave where if you use that you're just rolling a die and you see where you come out no control whatsoever um and then on the other hand the fireballs which was the really cool part right you just the paths are all so straight and there's no variability so that the thing that's supposed to be really exciting and chaotic is hampered because you know exactly where the fireball is going to go and exactly what it's going to do and yeah occasionally you might get a weird bump where it makes it fly off the board or something like that it's kind of cool but it's sort of just arbitrary the actual process of the fireballs is it's i wouldn't say it's simplistic let's put it that way and so the first thing rob said is we need to flip those we need to make it so that you're you have more control over your player and you can decide where to go and you're making choices about what parts of the island to go to and it's the marbles that are like chaotic and sort of the slot machine, right? Not completely chaotic. It shouldn't be total randomness, but mostly random or mostly chaotic um, because that's the excitement so that when you drop that marble down, everybody's looking like, where's it going to go? And mm -hmm. you have that moment where you're holding your breath and you see what, seeing what the marble does. That's the part of the game that everybody loves. And so again, that was the approach for Fireball Island. Take that marble experience and just make it really cool. And then now let's build everything else around it to serve that that function. Yeah, and I love that. I love that you take the core experience and then say, now what do we need to do to support that? And so we need to get rid of this mechanism and maybe change this one and do that. And I think that, that transitions perfectly to anyone who maybe was working on a game a year ago and, and got stuck. We're like, man, I really like this idea. I like this theme. It's just not working. It's just not uh, the mechanisms aren't working the way I want them to to maybe go back and, and say, okay, here's the core experience I want. What can I change, and what do I need to do to support that core experience, that core theme, or whatever you have, and, and just start playing around, start trying different things. Do you guys go through like a lot of trial and error where you kind of like plug this in and see if it works? Okay, they didn't work. Try something else. So I should mention, good time to mention, that uh, another member of our team is J.R. Honeycutt. Uh, yeah. He's our He's been on the show too, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's our tinker-in-chief. Um, and so between the three of us, uh, we sort of just do a nice, and the other members of the team also obviously are all avid game players and they contribute in their, their own way for sure. So we sort of have a brainstorming session and we'll take the first thing we do obviously is get out the old game and play it and, and just see what the experience is like and the things that work and the things that don't work. There's really not a lot of substitute for actually playing the game to, to see that. And then, uh, you know, between us, we'll sort of come up with some ideas for things that might work. And then, yeah, we're, it's a matter of testing and seeing, is this supporting, you know, the, the core or the feature of the game? Um, or is it something that it may not necessarily support it, but it's getting out of the way. It's not actively working against it. Right. So I'm trying to think of something like in Fireball Island where we wanted to, make sure that people went to different parts of the island, uh, that people weren't just sort of staying in the same spaces because we have this huge, beautiful island that we want people racing all over and not just going one way or staying in one spot. And so we, uh, were while we were developing the uh, rules, so we have 
the the score, if you will, is based on collecting these treasures, which are spread throughout the island. So there's some impetus there, but there are plenty all in different parts of the island. So you could avoid going to one part of the island and still get plenty of treasures. And so what we did, we added a sort of a not this a win prerequisite, if you will, where you have to collect uh, these snapshots from the different parts of the island in order to be able to go back to the helipad in this case, not the dock. And so it's not um, there's nothing super complicated about it. It's just these little checkpoints that you have to get to. And that forces people to go to different parts of the island, which serves the underlying function of putting people in different places where the marbles can go down different paths and do different things and lets people experience the broad range of how the island uh, works in that way, the kinetic nature of the island. Yeah, when you're working on these things that are trying to support that core, that soul of the game, how do you know when it's what you want? Is it just a feeling? Like, how do you guys kind of sit, stand back and go, okay, this is what we want? In term, I'm sorry, say that again, in terms of what? Of like uh, deciding on the new mechanisms and new things you're trying to do that actually support that core experience. Like, how do you, how do you know it's doing that? Because sometimes as a designer, it can be real hard to know. Like, Because like, one thing I've run into is like, I think this is fun. But how do I know if it is really fun? Is that just kind of get into your playtesting, or is that just is there something inside your development team where you guys can step back and go, yes, this is the way, this is the direction we want to go in? There, well, I mean, there's a few things. I don't think there's any tried and true, you know, thing that's going to let you know if something's working or not. There's a few things, right? Uh, so obviously, I, it's to last step first. I mean, when you get into playtesting and you start hearing that feedback, uh, that's obviously super valuable. And it's not always going to be as obvious as, yeah, this mechanic is not that much fun, right? It's never, it's not, not never, but it's not always that uh, straightforward. Uh, sometimes it's like, we found this confusing, or this was making people uh, take, you know, too long to take their turns. Like they were, anything that's causing AP, for example, you know, the analysis paralysis, uh, or things that are making, that are, complicated to write rules for I think is always a good thing like one of the things that I particularly like to do is write the rules right at the beginning almost of the game when when we're designing I find that it's helpful for me to get my head around the game and think about the different parts of the game you know the win condition and how what setup looks like and things like that and doing that also you can find out oh this thing that we were planning on doing I've got to write like a half a page of rules to get this in and as cool as that thing might be, you probably want to figure out a different way to do it. Um, now, it's not true for every game, obviously. There's plenty of very heavy games out there with complicated rule sets, and that's great. But even then, you want to keep an eye on, like, if I think trying to write a rule for a mechanism is a good way to learn, or one good way to learn if that mechanism is going to work. Yeah, definitely. And if it's hard to explain in the rules, it's going to be hard to explain at the table. And so just kind of doing that that process on the front end. What are some of the biggest challenges you guys have run into as far as restoring these games? And you, like you know what the soul of the game is. You know what that experience is that you want to recreate. But what are some of the, like, the big obstacles that you run into with these games? Well, uh, Fireball Island in particular has its own unique challenges. I, I've joked a few times and to some people that – I always used to wonder about why no one had brought Fireball Island back, and now I know, because uh, it has been—it's an, an absolute design uh, beast yeah. uh, with that 3D island. It's—it's it's just so unique. 
that it's it's very hard to design for from a just a purely pragmatic uh, standpoint. You've got there's only so much testing you can do on a 2D map when the game is about you know marbles rolling down and knocking people over and stuff. Now you can simulate some of that and say you can move make drop a little 2D map and have people go around and simulate. Oh well, let's pretend this marble does that. But there, in a game that features it, it's only going to take you so far. And so, I mean, as a practical matter, they, to get a prototype tray, one prototype board to play on is like three thousand dollars. Wow! <laughs> so, and that's just for the prototype. So yeah. we can't, you know, print up ten of them and send them around to play testers and things like that. So just as a practical matter, that one's been very challenging. Um, and then I think uh, more generally, on, in particular for us, the games we work on, since a lot of people do have some nostalgia for some of these, you need to be careful about that they're enjoying it because they're getting to play something that they have a lot, a lot of nostalgia for. Nostalgia fills in a lot of gaps, let's put it that way. Yeah. And so I think it's useful for us in particular to have people play it who've never played the original game. We always try and have some play testers who do that and some who obviously have to make sure that we're serving that experience as well we want to we want to do that bit of fan service for sure yeah that was going to be my next question as far as play testing do you guys try to find people who owned the game as a kid or do you shy away from it so you're saying it's kind of a mix of both yeah i mean it, it we i think we like to have a mix of both for sure because we like to see if it stands on its own as a modern game without any preconceptions but also see if people are enjoying it who and that it's it's serving that need um for them I will say it's much easier to get people to play test if they have the nostalgia. Um, I mean, we've got people lined up out the door who want to play test Fireball Island. Right. Let's put it that way. So. Yeah, and I think going back to just how the audience here with with game designers, it's good to have people who have play tested your game that's been sitting on the shelf and then let them try it again after you've made some changes, so they can kind of have a good before and after feeling. Go, oh yeah. I used to I used to hate how your game did this, but you you fixed it with this over here, and it feels a lot better. But then also have people who've never played it before. I think I think that translates to to normal game design, not just restoring games as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that kind of comparative playtesting can be very helpful for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Tell me more about your playtesting process. Just kind of how do you guys do it? How do you get feedback? Obviously, it's hard when you've only got one, I assume you only one copy of Fireball Island, but you've got these other games that you've done that you've been able to yeah, send out more say, copies. So what's we'll, your process? We'll leave Fireball Island out of it for now. <laughs> right, it's, it's a, a, it's a unique, unique thing. So we, fortunately, you know, when we have Rob Davio and J.R. Honeycutt on the team, it, it, we're, we don't uh, have too much trouble getting playtesters. They both they both have lots of friends who are uh, into gaming, obviously, who can do playtesting for them, and have done playtesting for them before. And I don't mean like personal friends, but like I guess they've got a personal network, if you will, of playtesters. Right. And then uh, we do when we do put a call out for playtesters, it helps obviously uh, if these are games that some people have enjoyed. And, and like I said, it's easy to get playtesters for games that people are nostalgic about. Um, and so oftentimes we'll do a call either, uh, one of the first things we'll do is, uh, through our newsletter. So you can sign up for a newsletter on our website. Um, we don't do a lot of announcements, but occasionally we've called for play testing through there. Um, and that's a good way to get people. And then last resort of course is, you know, social media. <laughs> and we've done that a uh, time or two also, particularly if we want, we need something quick, like, uh, 
and we're trying to get something done and we just want to get one more play test in or something, we'll put a blast out on social media. Um, but then generally what we do is, I mean, I, I don't, per, I, it's, this is not the way that I've done it, but this is the way the team does it now is, um, because I'm not a huge fan of Google Docs. <laughs> uh, I'm much more of a Dropbox guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the team is very much a Google Docs team. So I'm learning to change my ways. Uh, and usually what we do is we basically get a, a playtest doc up in Google Docs with the rules and then a separate uh, set of files for the print and play. And then uh, we also use Google Forms for feedback. So we'll set up essentially a survey uh, that asks the questions that we are looking for answers to. And then basically we collect those responses through the Google Forms and then we can review them all. So typically, uh, I mean, I guess if you want me to go into the what the forms look like, I'm happy yeah, to Yeah, sure. That. No, I think, I think yeah, that could so, be super helpful to people. Uh, so typically what we're looking for is obviously there's a few fundamental things. We get names. We ask people if they want their – if if we intended, which we do, if uh, going to put the playtester credits in, uh, that they're okay with us using their names in the playtesting credits. We like to do that. How long the game took them to play is always an important question. Um, that, that's one of the ones we always ask. Um, and then we always have sort of a catch-all in terms of like, is there anything else you think we should know? Or is there anything that was confusing? That sort of thing. And then we're going to ask, no, we don't want to ask too many things because if something's really jumping out, then they'll put it in the catch-all answer. But what we're usually looking to do is asking two or three or four questions that really hone in on what we're looking at design-wise that we're concerned about. Like, um, you know, if we're playtesting Stop Thief, um, you know, did and we're looking at, like, a special ability for an investigator. You know, how many times did you use this investigator's ability? On a scale of 1 to 10, how helpful was it? That sort of thing. And so we'll ask a few specific questions to make sure we're getting some specific feedback about things that we're really focusing on at that time in that part of the playtest. Yeah, gotcha. Now, Rob, when he was on the show before, he talked about how something he learned from Matt Leacock was filming playtests. Do you guys do any, any video with filming playtests? Uh, we have. It's not. I mean, that's obviously hard to set up. It's great if you can do it. Right. Um, and in, in fact, for Fireball Island, that will essentially be doing some of that. So I, I don't know if you've heard, but we're so this unique problem, if you will, we're trying to judo it into a, uh, a benefit. Um, but we, since we only have one tray for playtesting, so JR is going to do this uh, Volcar world tour where he's <laughs> basically, we're starting at PAX and he is, we're, I rented him a car and we're putting a nice big fireball island car magnet on there. Nice. And we're going to do the, the Stanley Cup treatment where we got a big locker for the mm-hmm. the game and the white glove treatment and all that. And he's going to be driving around all over, you know, east of the Miss, well, east of the Rockies, let's say, mm-hmm. to different game stores and uh, cafes and mini cons and things like that. And we're going to be basically playing the game with people while our Kickstarter is going on. Um, and I think he's ending up back home basically in texas at the end at the beginning of may and so our plan is you know on the one hand that's to sort of get marketing and get people interested in the kickstarter but it'll also really be our first opportunity for fully outside play testing um so obviously we've done some play testing with some local rob has i haven't even actually had a chance to 
to play it myself yet because I don't. The, he gets all the trays. So. Right. He's just hiding um, it from you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, he's obviously played it with people up there, but you know, taking it out to these various places and actually letting people play with it. You know, the game is is essentially done. It's ninety nine percent done. We're just doing the the final little tweaks here and there. But it'll be a good, essentially, open playtest period while we're doing this. We'll still have time, like, if for some reason we feel like there's something not quite working with a card or something, we can tweak that. Uh, and I know we'll be filming them, so that'll be cool. <laughs> yeah, and I'll be interested to hear about kind of how this works as a marketing tool. Is this effective? Is this an effective way to market during a Kickstarter? And how, like, how many backers does it really bring in to to your project? It'll be interesting to see the numbers on that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, but otherwise we couldn't. Normally, I guess if you do a Kickstarter, you'd be like, oh, here, send out 10 copies of right. your game to some preview. We just can't do that. Mm-hmm. It's not viable. And so we had to think, I think it was Jared came up with this idea. We sort of, it was sort of like a, we talked it all out one day. We were just, someone seized on some idea and we just kept, you know, running it around the room and it, it came out. And I, I think it would be fun either way. So, yeah, it'd be kind of a fun documentary opportunity where you kind of follow yeah. JR around on this road trip and he's seeing all these new people. That'd be kind of fun to watch. Yeah, we got a lot of fun stuff planned with it too. So, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, any other uh, tips or tricks that you've learned as far as playtesting or, or with these games you're trying to bring back to life or anything like that? Nothing that I can think of off the top of my head. I know Rob did a whole episode on playtesting, so yeah, that's fair. My my advice is to go listen to that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, what other advice would you give someone who maybe has some games that they put on the shelf that they just weren't happy with, they weren't working right, and now they're trying to bring them back out and and breathe some new life into them? Any other advice you would give somebody in that situation? Yeah. So, I think that the two things that I think I would suggest are this. Um, and they're from our experience. And it, basically, since we're taking these old games, they're essentially, at, at this point, they've aged into being sort of rough designs, right? They're finished, they work, um, but there's something that's not quite, you know, that can, there's something that can be improved. Otherwise, we wouldn't be bothering. And so we have to sort of figure out what can we do. And we talked a little bit about that already. But two things that uh, in particular I think are good to try uh, one is to try a retheme, which sounds weird because it doesn't directly affect the mechanics, obviously, if you're work changing it from you know space to fantasy, for example. Um, but you'd be surprised how changing the theme can give you ideas for the mechanics just in the way that theme something might work in that theme differently than it did in the old theme. Um, so you might have a, a sci-fi game that's a combat game that's not quite working, and then you try it in fantasy and you realize it works better because there's more hand-to-hand combat than ranged combat, for example, and that helps you solve some other problem. Um, so for us, for example, on Dinosaur Tea Party, the original game was humans on a big board with some uncomfortable 1970s stereotypes, ethnic stereotypes, so... Uh, Rob actually had this theme in his head for a long, this just this idea of a dinosaur tea party. Apparently, he's been carrying that idea around in his bag of ideas for you know fifteen twenty years or whatever. And he said, "Oh, we should try that." And like it all just clicked then, and that helped us really sort of figure out how to do uh, some of the game. To, what we really wanted to do is streamline it and simplify it. Um, and to make it into like a 15 to 30 minute game instead of like 45 minutes to an hour 
given that the nature of the game fundamentally is just pure logical deduction game, you know, try and figure out who the other dinosaurs are. Um, in addition to being a lot of fun, obviously, the theme itself is a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, we had this idea of, uh, since in the original game, you are trying to guess everybody's names at once. And there was a voting mechanism, uh, like actual uh, device in there that was kind of cool, but a little fiddly. So we, for a long time, we tried to figure out how to make the voting device work. And then instead, we actually designed a nice little teapot to turn it into and all this stuff. Um, but it still was a little fussy. But the idea was you take these, instead of dropping your chip in the voting device, you have this little teapot and you take these sugar cubes and you're dropping them into either side of the, the teapot. Well, we ended up getting rid of the teapot, but we left the sugar cubes. And then it just became a matter of like, oh, first person to get to three sugar cubes wins. And so it super simplified and streamlined the game. And we just got finished testing. We're, we're not testing, demoing the game at Gamma. And it's funny, everybody's just eating it up because by making it simpler, uh, we made it quicker and more streamlined, which lets the theme shine through more, and it all just sort of clicked once we did that. So I think a theme change, even if you don't end up using that theme, sometimes it can help you with an idea for uh, changing in a mechanism or adding something in. So I think that's a big one. Yeah, definitely. One thing I was working on, I was working on an NFL-style professional football game, and I was playing actually with Gil Hova. I was at uh, Origins last year at an un the Unpub Room, and he played the game, and he, he said, you know, I like this, I like that. He we uh, went we went into overtime on one of the games we were playing, and he said, "Yeah, but the mechanics of your overtime act like college football. They don't because NFL sudden death, but you don't have sudden death. You have this kind of mechanic over here." And I was like, "Yeah, you're right." And I started thinking, like, what if this was just a college football game? And so sometimes the mechanics can just lend themselves to changing of a theme. So don't even you know. Because sometimes people are like, well, let's try fantasy. Uh, let's try space. And they just try to start slapping different themes and trying to see what works. And that's fine. That's a great way to do it. But at the same time, step back and go, well, what do these mechanisms lend themselves more towards? Because in my, in my case, it worked out really, really well. That It was a better college football game than professional. All right, so you said there were two things. So one yeah. was the theme change. What was the second thing? And I think the second thing is to not be afraid to try something really off the wall as adding a, some really off the wall or mechanism or something that you think won't work and just trying it. Yeah. Uh, there's always an undo button, right? You always have a prior version you can go back to after you delete the, the one that failed horribly. And all you, you've, you know, you haven't lost anything. The only thing you've done is spent some time and effort, but I think it can lead to a breakthrough and at minimum it might help you understand your design better and then give you an idea about something else that might work. So, you know, just throwing something really weird in there. I was trying to think of an example of one of our games. So, for example, like Fireball Island, we just we were trying to figure out, again, a way to sort of add some variety without adding complexity. Um, and so we said, well, what if we add some set collection into the to the treasures? And it worked. It's, it's just sort of hit that sweet spot of making it interesting without making it overly complex and uh, still making sense within the theme or whatever. But, you know, if you've got a game that you're using, you know, this we run into this one all the time, obviously, like where we original game like Stop Thief has roll and move. Well, what are we going to replace that with? And there's lots of things you could try. And one of the things we did is we said, well, let's just use cards instead of dice. That way we can control the, the randomness. And from that, once we tried that out, I, I said, well, 
why don't we just make them asymmetrical then if, if everyone's got their you know little hand of cards and that let us give the investigators different themes with different abilities and incorporated the old sleuth cards from the original game uh, but make them into separate asymmetrical decks and it just worked and uh, so don't be afraid to try something totally different I guess is what I would say yeah definitely well Justin, man, really appreciate you coming on the show. We've been talking about it this whole time, but do you want to give a quick uh, pitch for your Kickstarter with Fireball Island that's going on right now? Absolutely. Uh, I guess I should have done that up front, right? <laughs> well, no, we do it so, on, at the uh, end, the last thing people hear. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Make them listen to the end. Uh, so we are doing a Kickstarter for Fireball Island. Uh, it is going from April 3rd to, I think, May 3rd is the plan, somewhere right at the beginning of May. Um, and, uh, it, I'm excited for you all to see it. Uh, we've been teasing a little bit here and there, but I'm excited to finally show it all off. We have a base game, uh, which is when we worked very hard to keep the price point low, uh, cause we're sort of family oriented. Yeah, I'm not sort of, we're, we're a family oriented company. We want people to share these games with their kids and say, Oh, I played this game when I was a kid and now it's back kind of thing. We think that's a really fun experience. So uh, the MSRP on the game is going to be 70 but it is available uh, for $60 uh, in the Kickstarter. And then we also, we just teased, uh, we have three expansions that are available in the Kickstarter as well and will be available at launch uh, when the product launches. And uh, since now we're in the future, I can say that the three expansions are three different, and this is really interesting too, we wanted to add three different sort of ways to play or like different little uh, play moments in the game, if you will, that people could decide what suited their taste. So we've got the big one is the Wreck of the Crimson Cutlass, which is basically a big pirate ship that adds an entirely separate uh, location that the players can go to with a neat, really neat marble mechanism that's like tipping point thing, sort of like Spill the Beans, where you're adding marbles to the crow's nest and eventually it's going to tip over and it's got cannons and skulls and all kinds of stuff and gems and then the other one uh, we've got is uh, crouching tiger hidden bees uh, which adds a dexterity shot to the game so we've got this tiger that's with these flexed hind legs which is sort of like the old ants in the pants game where you sort of like push down and then it so you you have the tiger off the side of the board you push down and it'll jump onto the board and you're trying to hit one of the players with it and then the last one is um, The Last Adventurer. And the idea there is that the this is the guy who's been stuck on the island for 30 years and is very competent and actually knows what he's doing as opposed to the hapless VIP guests for the adventure tourism company that are on the island now. And so he adds a fifth player option, a new miniature, a big boulder, which is different kind of, so it rolls very differently, obviously, from the marbles. It's sort of irregularly shaped. And we've got snakes, which are smaller marbles that are set up on the island. And then uh, some player powers, too, to change up the gameplay. And so we have uh, those three expansions, which are uh, available in a bundle also. If there's, so in other words, we're going to have two tiers. We're going to have a regular base game tier at 60 bucks to get the game. And then uh, an all-in tier at $130, uh, you get everything. And then we've also got lots of perks, not Kickstarter exclusives. We don't really believe in that. Um, but there are things that will be available to backers that other people will have to pay for. Um, so you'll get some other perks by backing 
uh, beyond waiting to get the game. Yeah, man, this thing sounds so cool. I'm so excited. I saw the uh, picture of kind of your prototype the other day when you were talking to Tom Vassell at Gamma, and it just uh, it just looks so cool. I can't wait to uh, play the game with my kids. I remember playing this game forever ago in a friend of mine's house, and it was it was okay. You know, it was fun just to like knock stuff over, but I'm excited to see a 2018 version of that game. Well, Justin, man, really appreciate you coming on the show. We're about to head over into a bonus round where we're going to talk about managing expectations, how to manage the hype, which is something that you guys over there have to really uh, think through with a lot of the projects that you're working on. So I want to hear your advice on that. But again, Justin, thanks for your time and good luck with everything you got going on right now. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?